Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I'm glad to have all of you with us uh, today. Before I introduce the panel, just a <clears throat> excuse me, very quick note. Uh, you know that, I think, when we have panelists on this show who identify very specifically with one party or another, Democrats or Republicans, it's our best hope to always pair them up, to have a Democrat and a Republican on the show. We strive for that balance on, on those days. We lost, at the very last minute today, our Republican panelist who uh, called in sick. I don't want to call that person out. There's no point in doing that except to say that uh, as you hear the conversation unfold today, unfortunately, uh, there won't be a Republican uh, to uh, join us for the discussion. But I think we're going to have a pretty good discussion regardless, and we'll keep it as balanced as we possibly can. With that in mind, let me get people started here on the show. Tamar Hallerman, my Tuesday partner on the show, senior reporter for the AJC. How you doing, Tamar? Bill, you're still stuck with me on Tuesdays. I'm sorry to report. I am. I I don't ever say that, Tamar. I love having you on the show. <laughs> Thank you for uh, being here. Uh, Kurt Young is with us. He's a professor of political science and the chairman of the political science department at Clark Atlanta University. Um, how you doing, Kurt? Things going well for you? Going well. Thanks for uh, having me. Looking forward to the conversation this morning. Absolutely. And we're joined today by Melita Easters. Um, Melita Easters is the founder and executive director of the Georgia Win List, which is an organization that she founded uh, because she wanted to identify Democratic pro-choice women to run for office. And it's, at some point in the show today, Melita, we'll ask you how your candidates are doing as the uh, primary cycle unfolds. In the meantime, how are you, Melita? I'm great, and thanks for having me back. I look forward to talking with everyone. Absolutely. We should tell I tell our, our uh, listeners, too, that you've become a pretty regular fixture on the Georgia Gang on Fox 5 uh, News on Sunday mornings. Is that a fun experience for you? It's very interesting, and having to put on a TV face after... Um, being in um, quarantine for so many years is kind of interesting, too. <laughs> well, it's great that you are, are on that show these days. Um, Thank you. Tamar, let's start with some news that uh, I just saw for the first time this morning in uh, the Jolt at the AJC. Um, the, the Jolt has gotten a hold of a poll. It's an internal poll uh that was uh, uh, run for the Kemp organization by a pretty respected Republican pollster, Signal. And here's what it says. Brian Kemp is close to winning without a runoff in the governor's uh, primary, in the GOP primary. I, I don't know that we've talked about this very often, but there are actually five candidates running for governor. It's not just Brian Kemp and David Perdue. And so there have been fears 
that with a can, uh, uh, with five candidates in the race, it might be difficult for anybody to get over 50 percent. But this poll says that Kemp is close. It's an internal poll. It's been released to the media. That means we also always have to be just a, a little bit skeptical. Tomorrow. Yeah, you always have to take internal polls with a, a grain of salt and you have to be very aware of, of who's the one funding them. But obviously a huge deal for the, the Kemp campaign. Uh, it shows him that he's right at 49 percent. He, of course, has to clear 50 percent. Um, and this is a huge deal for him because, of course, he's been having to spend valuable money, time, resources to fight off this primary challenge from David Perdue when he would much rather be focusing on Stacey Abrams and the November general election. And because, like you said, he has four challengers, it's very possible, even if he leads Perdue, by a very substantial margin, he still is stuck uh, going into a runoff and having to spend time and money and resources fighting off, um, you know, attacks from his right. Um, so obviously, if he's able to, to push to 50, it would be huge. And I think what's significant here is, you know, this is after Donald Trump came down to campaign for David Perdue and his slate of candidates in Commerce, Georgia. And that was Perdue's ace card. You know, he had that endorsement from, from Trump, and he was really hoping that as more Republican primary voters learned of that endorsement, that would help him close the gap with uh, with Governor Kemp. And so far, there isn't much of a Trump bump. A signal actually found uh, among the 825 likely Republican primary voters that they surveyed that 87 percent know that Trump has endorsed David Perdue. Uh, Kurt Young, that's not good news for the uh, Purdue campaign, clearly. Right. And, and, and as Tamar just mentioned, that was the main thrust of their campaign uh, uh, for, the, for the governorship, the fact that he had the endorsement of Donald Trump. And it was not that long ago when we were receiving that endorsement was really the signal to victory in, in the close or uh, otherwise uh, um, 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 type of race. So, but I think it also is a is an important discussion about the strength of the Trump uh, um, endorsement going forward uh, in a series of elections, and and certainly it is it's all magnified and amplified in the state of Georgia, given what occurred in uh, 2020 and what we anticipate uh, next fall as as well as 2024. So. Um, it, it, this is really doesn't bode well for, for, for Purdue, um, and it really is an important uh, leap forward uh, for Kemp. Okay, Melita, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, temper this just a little bit by pointing out that an independent poll conducted by Emerson College and The Hill uh, at, that was just released uh, uh, late last week has Kemp at 43%. And uh, Purdue at 32 percent, a much different finding than the internal poll. And what's interesting, of course, about that poll is that it puts Kemp well under the 50 percent threshold he needs, not only to win without a runoff, but what we typically in the conventional thinking assume an an incumbent must have if he or she expects to be reelected, Melita. This is true, and but the thing that's consistent in both of those polls is that Purdue is 10 points behind Kemp. And the other thing that was interesting to me in this newest poll is that Candace Taylor's percentage rate went up to 5% from having hovered at 3%. So when you combine her increase 
with the margins of error, then the runoff might seem a little more likely. But I think with 10 points behind, does that mean that Purdue will put in some of his own very big fortune to booster um, his chances? And will Trump part with any money to polish his brand? Or since he's been scaling back his uh, expectations for Purdue, will he um, keep that money for himself? And it also has to be very concerning for all of the down-ballot candidates, some of them with very little name recognition, who have um, endorsed, been endorsed by Trump and pinned their hopes on his coattails. We have to remember that this is a giant test for former President Trump and his clout, um, not only in Georgia, but nationwide. Um, Trump hasn't only endorsed David Perdue, as Melita said. He is an entire slate of candidates up and down the ballot, down to insurance commissioner, a race normally that kingmakers, especially nationally, don't care about. Um, so it will look really terrible to him, especially as he puts out endorsements in states like Ohio, Pennsylvania. It'll look really bad if his main endorsee, the the kind of main person that he's endorsed in Georgia, David Perdue, does not do well and can't even get within 10 points of Governor Kemp. Now, Perdue will, will mention, you know, he hasn't spent significant money on TV. Perhaps there is time to, to kind of turn things around. You know, we still have six weeks until the um, the primary, and especially if he can keep Perdue under, um, under 50%. Runoffs in Georgia are notoriously um, crazy. And, and sometimes people can come from behind, just like Governor Kemp was able to do in the Republican primary in 2018 with Casey Cagle. So I think that's something that Kemp should be worried about, even if he cruises through just under 50 percent, but much higher than Purdue. And, and that, that's a great point. The scrutiny of the polls, I think, is also important here. Uh, we It wasn't that long ago where we were surprised by what the polls indicated to be the turnout uh, uh, in the results of the elections in, in 2020. And many of us were shocked to see that perhaps those who opposed answered one way and then voted the other way. Uh, and we're still trying to wrap our minds around that and, and the impact that that has on how we anticipate these elections uh, uh, unfolding. Okay, so Melita, let's take a deep breath about this poll for just a moment and point out that, again, the Signal Group clearly leaked this poll to reporters because it's a very favorable outcome for their candidate. But let's look at one of the potential reasons why you do that right now. Um, we know that, that Purdue is far, far behind Kemp when it comes to fundraising, having a very difficult time raising money. Uh, you all point out that uh, maybe Purdue's going to have to dip into his own personal fortune, the likelihood of Trump putting up some money. Come on. How much money does Trump <laughs> give out to other candidates? <laughs> Not a lot. Uh, so... This is a moment at which, if you're David Perdue, you need to convince potential donors out there you have a real chance to win this primary. And the timing of this poll really suggests that it might be even harder for Perdue to make that case with the big money people he needs to attract, Melita. I think that's a very wise point, and I think um, Perdue is, so far behind that it would take a Hail Mary pass, to use a football phrase, for him to find the golden bullet that lets him leap ahead of count. 
And for so long, by the way, his golden bullet was supposed to be Trump's endorsement. And that has shown right now that there hasn't been a giant ripple effect. Um, Another stat from this poll that's that's interesting that could be harmful to David Perdue is he attempts to show people that they should still stick with him. And something he used to always argue was that he was better positioned to defeat Stacey Abrams in November. Um, And looking at this poll, it's saying that Abrams is actually slightly ahead of Perdue or within the margin of error anyway. She with a 48 percent and Perdue at 47. Um, and uh, Kemp did much better, 50% for him and 44% for Abrams. So that's not a great data point for Purdue either. And and to that point, you know, Abrams has only just begun to release TV ads, which will make her look good to the electorate as a whole. And so she has a huge campaign war chest to spend between now and November. And so... I would think that these poll numbers that show her so close would be of great concern to everyone in the Republican camp. Final point on this, Kurt, before we move on. Um, Stacey Abrams, as Melita just pointed out, has really ramped up her campaign now. She's out traveling across the state. She's uh, um, spending money on TV. She's laser-focused on health care as her giant issue in this campaign. The point being, she is capable right now, not facing any primary opposition and watching the Republicans duke it out to be able to send out positive messages about what she hopes to do for the good of the state of Georgia. If Brian Kemp wins without a runoff, they're going to come after Stacey Abrams with all the money they might have had to spend in a runoff election. And uh, Stacey Abrams, the landscape's going to change for Stacey Abrams very quickly after May 24th. I'm, I'm struggling with that, Bill, and here's why. I just, I'm not quite sure that there are a large pockets of voters who will struggle over the decision whether or not they will vote for the Democratic candidate or the Republican candidate in the in the general, I just have a feeling that minds are already made up, camps are already drawn, uh, and all I shouldn't say all, but part of what we're looking at here uh, uh, is the financing catching up to that reality. In other words, we sort of have a, uh, an election here that's driven by the traditional uh, campaigning and financing uh, uh, modes uh, and approaches, running ahead. Uh, first into a state that as divided as the national uh, uh, electorate seems to be. So you're correct, though. I, I, I'm not pushing back against your, your point. I think that she will take a pounding, and, and, and I don't think that it camp, uh, a campaign will, will, will spare any cent uh, in, in attempting to uh, cast her the way that they um, um, will and, and, and indicate in the, form, in the process of a tight election the way that they should. Uh, just in just ele- election politics 101, uh, electoral electoral politics 101. But I, I, the extent to which it causes major differences in the path forward towards the uh, governorship, I'm not quite sure. I think the bigger thing Stacey Abrams needs to worry about, and she should enjoy this moment right now where she is able to kind of sit back, message on (laughs) what she wants, and let the Republicans duke it out. Mm. She has to worry about the broader political climate in November, which is going to be something she won't be able to control. Um, Joe Biden is deeply unpopular right now. He's significantly underwater in all of these polls. Um, Inflation is really bad. Um, Some of the latest economic reports are not looking good. Um, Everyday consumers are feeling the pain at the pump, at the grocery 
grocery store. And so that's going to be a message that's going to be, um, you know, every single Democrat is going to have to find a way to navigate that. And unfortunately, there's not much Stacey Abrams or any down-ticket Democrat is going to be able to do to change any of that. So that's going to be a broader concern, and Republicans will have the upper hand in that messaging unless something significant changes in the world. Later. But I think in, in many ways, some of those issues you just mentioned are not um, controlled by the governor. And, and, for example, gas prices are not controlled by the president. So it's all going to come down to not the TV ads you can buy, but the ground game for organizing, the ground game for getting out the vote, and the motivation factor that the candidates can um, convey to their strongest supporters. It, it's it's going to be a bigger ground game than, than we've seen in the past, and the Abrams forces are very well equipped to deliver the votes. Yeah, I agree with that. So, I, I, go I'm ahead, sorry, Bert. I, I, I was just going to, I was excited to hear that point because it, that was the point that I, I think I left out of my, my approach, which is that um, really what it's going to come down to is mobilization on a, on a stage that we hadn't seen, in, 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 especially compared to the, to the previous election. Um, uh, you, you know, we kind of have a sense of where Atlanta will go, where Savannah will go, et cetera. But uh, rural Georgia is where we're going to be looking uh, to see the kind of turnout that Abrams is going to, uh, I think, pick up where she attempted to leave off uh, in the previous cycle. All right. Um, I, we can continue this conversation, but I want to do it in a slightly uh, a different context. Uh, you've all expressed uh, how important turnout is going to be in this election. And today uh, we're seeing uh, a, a group of uh, uh, faith leaders uh, gathering for a rally at the state capitol and then a march uh, led by Bishop Reginald T. Jackson, who is the presiding prelate of the 6th Episcopal, Episcopal District of the AME Church, and a number of other leaders. And what they're focusing on, uh, Melita, is not... SB 202 and their criticisms last year that that law was going to suppress African-American votes. Instead, Melita, they're focusing on how we can get the vote out for Democratic candidates. And I will add to that, Melita, that ever since the debate over SB 202 is going on in the legislature, our frequent panelist, Emory University's Alan Abramowitz, has made the point he doesn't believe SB 202 is going to suppress the vote. He believes it is going to energize Democratic voters, and they're going to turn out in bigger numbers than they might have typically. And that's certainly what the folks who are involved in this uh, rally today want to believe will be the case. Melita? I believe that's very <laughs> true. And I think what you also see is how that motivation played out in certain municipal elections across the state last fall. In Warner Robins, you saw them elect the first black woman mayor ever in the city's history, and that's right in the Purdue backyard. So there are voters in rural parts of the state, to the professor's point, who are being newly energized and newly motivated and to have Senator Warnock at the top of the ticket with Stacey Abrams will energize black voters in some rural areas who haven't had a reason to vote in a long time. 
Why don't we do this? Um, I want to move on to other topics of, of for our show today in just a moment. So why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way now, and we'll come back with more, including an interesting story that GPB Stephen Fowler uh, reported out, which suggests that Herschel Walker's financial disclosure reports may not, in fact, include information that's required and that would help voters understand his business practices and whether he stands the potential to run into significant conflicts of interest if he's elected to the Senate. We'll get to that story a lot more after these messages. Welcome back to Political Rewind. WinList founder and executive director Melita Easters is with us. So is Kurt Young, chairman of the Political Science Department and professor of political science at Clark Atlanta University, and my Tuesday partner, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, with us uh, today. Tamar, uh, Stephen Fowler reported out a pretty interesting story. I'm going to read just a little bit of it to set the context and then turn it over to you all to discuss it. Here's the lead. Trump-backed Georgia Republican U.S. Senate candidate Herschel Walker's personal financial disclosure is missing key information that could help voters spot potential conflicts of interest if elected, several campaign finance experts uh, say. Um, A review of Walker's financial disclosure shows inconsistencies in reporting sources of income and positions held, as well as a failure to list any sources that paid Walker more than $5,000 in 2020 and 2021. And Tamar, finally, what uh, 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 Fowler reports is that the three experts he talked to suggest that because Walker has failed to list clients for his business, H. Walker Enterprises, which is his flagship company, uh, because he's failed to list anybody who... um, paid him more than $5,000, we have an incomplete picture of just who he's getting money from. Uh, Tamar, hard to tell how much impact this might have on the race, but it's certainly another question about how Herschel Walker is running this campaign. Absolutely. And I mean, this is the latest uh, kind of report looking into his finances. Some of my colleagues looked into some of the claims he's made about his businesses, particularly um, one of his companies that does, um, I believe, chicken manufacturing or something of the like to show that it's it's, it's either very hard to confirm the claims he's made or that many of them in, in and of themselves were inflated. Um, I think this also highlights just kind of how weak the Senate reporting requirements are. I think some transparency advocates would say, um, in general, folks just have to give a range um, about what their assets may be worth, you know, 1 million to 5 million, 5 million to 20 million. But it's really hard if you're trying to pin down exactly how much somebody makes or or their assets. It's really hard to track that stuff. And uh, a lot of candidates can get away with not sharing a lot. Um, And that's a complaint that's been around for a long time. Um, You know, we can talk about this in a minute if you want to expand on this, Bill. But um, Herschel Walker has giant name recognition in Georgia. He's a football hero um, that many people love and have loved for decades here, and he's been cruising in the polls. Um, So there's a question of of how much this will do to change anything. And so far, the the MO of his campaign has been to kind of try and keep him out of the mud so that he can kind of cruise on to a general election with Raphael Warnock. Um, Kurt, what what Tamar says about reporting requirements is so true. Uh, One of the things Fowler 
uh, points out in his story is that Warnock, that I'm sorry, uh, 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 Walker is reporting a net worth in the range between $29 million and $65 million. That's quite a range. It does mean that no matter what end of the range he's on, he's the wealthiest candidate in uh, the race. Um, but uh, talk about this uh, for a minute, Kurt. Yeah, as I'm thinking about this, the problem that Tamar, Tamar mentioned a moment ago, is, it's been a problem that's been with us for a while, right? Uh, the, the lax uh, nature of, uh, of the, the reporting requirements at the, at the uh, senatorial level. Now, you add to that, Bill, the fact that we might be in a very different type of political climate right now. Right? Uh, the, 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 uh, the ethics politics have shifted. Uh, there was a point in time where a claim like this would be unheard of especially a, a senatorial candidate with national stature, as most of them are, but this is a different level of, a, of an election right now with so much riding on and all eyes focused on the state of Georgia. Imagine, Bill, it wasn't that long ago that a candidate in that kind of situation will have to dot I's, cross T's, and be squeaky clean, uh, at least to be, have the perception of being uh, squeaky clean. Uh, I don't want to continue to, to, to um, focus the conversation on, on one individual too, too much here, but uh, in the last presidential election, we've seen a shift away from that kind of standard being held uh, in, in national politics, almost to the point where there's a reverse, right? There's a perception that these items and these types of questions don't matter, uh, uh, and, and that in previous elections, they have been more have been made of them than actually count. Um, and now, going forward, I think we're at the cusp of seeing this being a, a, a normalcy in American electoral politics until the electoral, uh, I'm sorry, until the legislative process does something to address it. Melita Easters, you are a proud University of Georgia alum. I am, think you may very well have been uh, a, a Herschel Walker fan back in your days at the university. <laughs> Not anymore, Melita. <laughs> Well, bless his husband trophy, as I always say. Um, the professor makes some really wonderful points, and I think that, this, that what we have to do is look at the fact that you have all of these red flags. I mean, there are more red flags on his disclosure reports than you have yellow flags on the field when the team clears the bench for a brawl. Oh, and, good, Melita. <laughs> But, but this combines with the fact that he is not speaking to the press, that he is not participating in debate, that he is trying to glide into the U.S. Senate on the celebrity of a Heisman Trophy without coherently talking about messages and issues. And so there, there are just so many reasons to give him a, a thorough look before you cast a vote for him. I'd like to piggyback on some of the points that Professor Young made, because um, he makes some really good ones. Um, the first is that kind of the standard that was set when Donald Trump ran for president. You know, he it started on the strength of his celebrity. And so a lot of the details, especially when it came to his finances, things like his tax returns, um, were overlooked or, or norms were broken and his supporters didn't care. But when back in the day, that would have made a huge difference. And it's part of a, a broader trend in Washington, um, you know, with money and politics flowing in ever since the Citizens United decision in 2010, where I think just in general, people have been asking fewer and fewer questions about money, where it comes from, where it's going, um, wealth in campaigns, that sort of thing. Um, another point I 
want to make is that this is kind of an issue that you get in terms of, you know, like you were saying, it's very hard to figure out exactly how wealthy he is, exactly where he's getting his money. That's part of the problem. I think ethics are, are uh, ethics experts would would argue when senators police each other. Um, there's no. Um, there's no internal watchdog that has any sort of real teeth to be able to do this. There's the Senate Ethics Committee. Uh, but in general, you know, these are senators who are running this committee. And in general, they're scared to um, fight back too much against their own. Um, there have been bills over the years, including one that Senator Ossoff uh, recently introduced to, to ban mm -hmm. things like stock trading. Uh, but in general, it's really, really hard because everyone has these type of investments. People are so wealthy. They don't want reporters like us kind of digging into their wealth and where they get it from. And so it's really hard when you have to police yourself. All right. Uh, while we're talking about Herschel Walker, he has said uh, for months now that he had no interest in debating uh, before the Republican primary, that he's going to focus his attention on debating Raphael Warnock when he wins, as he believes he will, the Republican nomination. So, uh, Melita, the first major Republican Senate debate was held up in Gainesville last Saturday, and true to form, Herschel Walker was the one candidate who didn't show up, which left the remaining candidates uh, uh, sort of uh, attacking the empty podium that stood there with Herschel Walker's name on it. Let's listen to what Gary Black, just one of the things that Gary Black had to say about Herschel Walker's uh, absence. Now, there's an obvious vacancy tonight. I wish Herschel was here, but he is not. I think I know why. I'm also certain that every coach that he had in the past instructed him that you'll not play in the game if you don't show up for practice. But his coaches now have him locked in the basement of the locker room. I think it's a shame. I've come here tonight to answer your question. I've come here tonight to cast my vision for the future of Georgia. And I've also come here tonight to make sure that Herschel Walker never plays on the field with Raphael Warnock. Um, so, Melita, that was Gary Black, uh, agriculture commissioner, who, of course, is running for the Republican nomination. Kelvin King, another candidate for the GOP nomination, uh, said this is an interview process. And if you don't show up for the interview, you don't get the job. Latham Sadler, also running, said uh, Walker is doing the Biden basement strategy, referring back to the time that Biden isolated during the heart of COVID in his campaign for president. He said he's doing the Biden basement strategy. We saw what that got us. So, you know, Melita, these Republicans, the most recent polling has Herschel Walker at about 60 percent. And it's a sign of how the others are clutching at straws that they're saying, wow, he's dropped some in the polls. <laughs> Well, yes, he has dropped in the polls, and I suspect he may continue to drop in the polls. The question is, how low can he go um, before May 24th? And I, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be for somebody like Gary Black, who served in public office for many, many years and, and had meet and greets all over the state for many, many years, to watch a football hero, one who he may have pulled for in the past, move into Georgia very quickly and and become a candidate with the Trump endorsement. So, you know, Herschel has done a good job of divorcing himself from that Trump um, in, it, brand and creating his own brand because he had such a strong brand. 
But I think the combination of the financial disclosure questions, the no-shows at debate, the possible misrepresentations of his business empire, all of those things give his opponents a lot to use in their campaigns. It's just a matter of if they can whack away at his lead enough to put one of them in a runoff. So, Kurt, let me uh, offer this and get your reaction to it. Uh, reporters uh, have done a pretty good job so far of unearthing aspects of Herschel Walker's past that are worthy of consideration. Uh, Tamar just pointed out that the AJC looked into his business practices and found issues that uh, might be worthy of attention. Uh, there have certainly been reports about his uh, apparent mistreatment of women and worse in some uh, cases. Um, so the, the, the media is reporting all this, but the Herschel Walker campaign has only had had vague responses to this. There hasn't been any direct effort for Herschel Walker to have to answer for it. And here's the reason I bring this all up. If you don't participate in a Republican debate where some of this may come to light and you have to answer for it uh, in front of TV cameras and on stage, you're going to end up having to do that in a general election campaign against Raphael Warnock. And so I wonder if, in fact, the Walker campaign senses that there's any downside to not getting this stuff vetted and giving Walker the opportunity to respond himself in a charged atmosphere. Two points, two points. As an old old football player myself, I, I'm, I'm going to also invoke one of the, a, a, a metaphor there. Um, you know, there's no saying that practice makes perfect. Uh, it's not really true. Perfect practice makes perfect. And uh, I, I believe what he may be doing now or his campaign may be doing now is sort of a less than perfect practice in preparation for the general, which is to say, for example, that he's a front runner or he's perceived as a front runner. And so he need not really get muddled into the, uh, into the uh, um, um, primary types of debate uh, that, are, that probably won't do any good but to harm him. That's, I think, the kind of conventional wisdom. But you, are, you make an important point. It is going to be in those primary debates where he gets to sharpen his sword in response to those kind of criticisms. And those criticisms will not go away. Uh, we're in, a, 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 we're in a, a particular era right now where uh, um, the, the marketing and branding science uh, has been so advanced that they have a pretty good idea of where his weaknesses are and how those weaknesses will play out in Georgia uh, and then also in, uh, I'm sorry, in the, in the primary and in the general uh, as it pertains to uh, 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 heading up with uh, Raphael Warnock. Um, it's going to be pretty clear. Warnock will come after him as a clergyman and he will critique him as a man who stands in the shadow and in the shoes of, of the great Dr. Martin Luther King as a connection to Ebenezer Baptist Church um, and, and the extent to which uh, Georgia, regardless of where we see it in terms of the color politics, right, whether it's a blue state or, or a red state or a purple state, it's still a, it's still a state in, this, in, the, in the Bible Belt. And so you can almost anticipate what will come from this in terms of the, uh, the types of, uh, of attacks that Walker is going to face. And the last thing I'll add, Bill, I know we want to move on. Uh, the last thing I'll add is I'm not sure that he is a sharpened debater um, in, in terms of his natural uh, uh, instincts. Uh, and so you, you, you see him going, you're going to see all of these things come to the forefront when he gets into the general. Tomorrow. And I mean, not debating now will give him some more time to perhaps 
sharpen his debating skills, sharpen his pitch, because it, it will be hard. And, and Warnock, as a pastor, is a known orator. Um, that's his skill set. And so Warnock has to know that he has to be ready for that. At the same time, there's there's a great quote uh, in my colleague Greg Bluestein's story about all of this. He quotes our, our friend Martha Zoller, um, the Republican comment, commentator from North Georgia, who says, why would he try to do more in this primary, she said of Herschel Walker. He's got nowhere to go but down. So if you're leading by you know, with 80% of the vote in these primary polls, or even 60% of the vote. Why would you do anything to jeopardize that? So while there's that reporter in me who who wants everyone to answer every question I have, I, I can also see why his campaign would want to protect him and keep him away from needling reporters and, you know, uh, opponents who want to drag him down. Absolutely. And Melita, for all we know, Herschel Walker's fame may take him all the way to the United States Senate after November. Well, that is a dream on the Republican side of the aisle. I, I think that football fame has shown Alabama that Tommy Tuberville maybe shouldn't have been elected their senator. And so mm. I, I would put the two campaigns as somewhat of a comparison. All right. Um, thank you for that conversation. Um, I want to talk about some Democrats in the news in a minute. Uh, Stacey Abrams uh, is in court right now fighting to get access to uh, uh, leadership campaign money that we'll talk about after the break. It appears the judge is not going to buy the argument her campaign is making. Um, and uh, we've got more to discuss uh, after these messages. Melita Easters, you have been fighting in the trenches for a long time, creating and continuing to direct the Georgia win list, uh, working to uh, recruit uh, pro-choice women candidates uh, to running to to run uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, I want to repeat what I said at the beginning of the show. We had uh, at the last minute lost a Republican comment, commentator, analyst who could have talked to us about women on the Republican uh, side of the aisle. But tell us where you stand right now with the Democratic women that you've attracted and how you're feeling about what's happening in the cycle uh, in terms of their electability. Well, we have a record-setting number of women from both sides of the aisle who have qualified for the 2022 election cycle. There are 219 Georgia women in federal, statewide, or legislative races. 150 of those are Democrats. WinList has already endorsed 31 legislative race women, but there are another 50 races that we have to interview candidates for and make endorsement decisions about. And this is the most women candidates we've ever had on the ballot. And what's fascinating to me is a number that I discovered newly this weekend when I was doing a training. Um, back in 20, um, 2012, and um, 76% of Georgia races were uncontested. That number rose to 80% in 2014 and 2016. 80% of the legislative seats were uncontested. Now, 70% of the legislative races are contested. That is such a dramatic swing. And it shows that on both sides of the aisle, women are running more, 
Um, people of color are running more. Um, there's a greater diversity of candidates on the ballot. And so as our state shifts toward majority-minority status in, in diversity, our legislature will soon follow because candidates who are more representative of the population as a whole are qualifying for office. So, uh, Tamara, uh, what, what the numbers that Melita just revealed are really fascinating, that we have so many women running for office. Nevertheless, uh, women are, continue to be underrepresented uh, in uh, the legislature, in Congress. And uh, there are those who would say that women are the easiest and first targets for, in this case, Republicans when they do redistricting. It is women incumbents that uh, get the first uh, uh, are, are, are booted most quickly. Michelle Au would say she's a perfect example of that senator up in Gwinnett County. But Tamar, there is movement in the right direction. And I mean, what's interesting is that in Georgia, you are seeing the, the rise of groups just like mm. Melita's um, that want to cultivate female candidates. Um, and for a while, Democrats were much farther ahead, especially on the national level with groups like Emily's List um, looking to elect Democratic pro-choice women. Um, but also you're starting to see Republican groups starting to catch up. I know at least in Washington, Elise Stefanik um, has her own group where she was trying to recruit Republican women. You're starting to see networks like that emerge a little bit more in Georgia. Um, my question for Melita, out of curiosity, I'm wondering the difference that you've seen, you've been doing this for so, so many cycles, now, I'm curious if you've noticed a difference in the types of women who are stepping up who want to get your endorsement, if you're seeing perhaps more electable candidates. Are you seeing folks who are more educated, are more, you know, what are you seeing in terms of folks who want to run? Well, we're absolutely seeing several of those things. We have far more women who are the mothers of young children. When WinList first started 22 years ago, Sally Harrell and one other woman were the only two with school-aged children in the whole General Assembly. Last year, we had, um, I think, 38 in the last election cycle. There were 38 endorsed women with children who had between them a total of 55 children. So to have women who have children in the public schools making policy about education is vastly different. We also see a larger number of very well-educated women. Two-thirds of the, of the 54 women we endorsed in 2020 had um, master's or Ph.D. degrees, and that was a big shift. And so our women are more educated. Our women are more likely to be the mothers of young children, and, and so it, it gives better better kinds of decisions to be made in the rooms where it happens once they're elected. Kurt? You know, you know, Bill, in times of political intensity, um, there, there's always a politics of substance, right? Uh, when you look for the substantive uh, issues, the policy issues and, and, and what have you to um, ring large. But, also, in those periods of time, the politics of symbolism becomes very, very powerful. And notwithstanding all of those, and I really want to commend Melita for that work she's doing. It's really important. And, 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 and it, without that kind of work, we won't see the changes uh, that, that uh, we need to uh, cre create a more even playing field. 
but the symbolisms. Imagine the backdrop that this is occurring uh, um, um, that, against which this is occurring. We saw the euphoria around the first woman of color um, be elected vice president, first elected and then elected vice president uh, in the history of this country. And then just not long ago, a couple of days ago, yesterday, we saw the confirmation and then the uh, 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 seating of the first African-American woman uh, justice on the, on the United States Supreme Court uh, in a history that only produced three African, uh, uh, two prior African-Americans on that court and um, with more women. But certainly th 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 these are the symbolic developments taking place right now. And there is no expectation that we should have that it will be limited at the level of national politics. In fact, we, we can expect to see this matriculate uh, down into all types of races uh, at the uh, national level, at the state level, and at the local level. And I think it bodes well for the future of American politics. Melina? Well, I'd like to say that, of course, Stacey Abrams would be become the first woman and the first black governor in the state of Georgia. She would be the first black woman governor in the nation. A little overlooked fact is the fact that if B. Wynn were elected secretary of state, she would be the first Vietnamese-American elected statewide in Georgia. She would be the first Vietnamese-American woman elected statewide in the nation. Jen Jordan and Nicole Horn, if they are elected, would be the first women to serve as attorney general and labor commissioner. And then, just because I forgot to mention it before, Georgia has both the highest number of black women legislators in the nation and the highest percentage of black women legislators in the nation. The other figure that's kind of interesting is, you know, I always joke about the Republican Party in Georgia being stale, pale, and male. Georgia Democratic women in the legislature outnumber their Republican colleagues 3.2 to 1. And in other states around us, those ratios are far smaller. In fact, George Florida has 1.2 Republican legislators to every Democratic female legislator. Tamar, um, everything that, that Kurt and Melita are just talking about, it reminds us that Republicans, for the most part, are simply not keeping up with the changing demographics. I think I, I did think it was interesting that Melita said there are so many women running on the Republican side of, of the aisle this time. That's a good sign for Republicans. Nevertheless, when you look at the way the uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings played out, the way Republicans attacked her, um, these are the sort of things that show you the Republicans got a long way to go if they hope to keep up uh, with uh, the population of the state of Georgia and beyond. Yeah, and I mean, a lot depends on, on you know, the groups that we're talking about. You've seen inroads lately that Republicans have made, particularly with Latinos um, in the Southwest. Mm -hmm. So they might point to something like that as a success. Um, one thing that's important is starting networks like Melita's um, on both sides of the aisle, because something that research has shown about women candidates is they need to be asked more times to run for office than men do. They don't see themselves kind of as naturally wanting to stand out. So having those networks, um, like the one that Karen Owen, our um, our political rewind friend uh, at the University of West Georgia started to help train women to show them like this can be you. You don't just have to be this 
wealthy dude who's a lawyer to be able to do this. Um, I think people need to see. So so there are plenty of Republican women out there who just need to see themselves reflected in those networks. All right. I want to get in one last topic with the little time we have remaining. Tamar, uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign is in, has gone to court. They're in front of federal judge Mark Cohen saying that the leadership committees, which the legislature approved last session, which gave Governor Kemp and a few uh, and a handful of other leaders the opportunity to form committees that could raise unlimited amounts of money, even during the session, um, uh, the, the Abrams campaign has now contended that because she is the de facto nominee for the Democratic nomination, she should be able to start taking advantage of the leadership committee. Mark Cohn says he doesn't have uh, the authority to say that she's the nominee. She's got to wait till the pro- she's elected in the primary. But we don't know if he's going to rule for certain that way, but it appears he will. It does remind us that th- this is such an unlevel playing field, these committees, Tamar, that um, it's at some point you've got to imagine a court's going to uh, find a way to undo this law. What was pretty remarkable was to hear that judge basically tell Abrams' lawyers that they did the wrong strategy, that they shouldn't have focused yes. on the fact that she's not the nominee. They should have focused on the fact that Kemp, that Kemp under this law passed last year, had an advantage that no other candidate possessed. Um, yes. So Abrams' lawyers must be <laughs> sad about, about that approach. I'm curious whether they'll be able, you know, whether it's too late for them to kind of change that approach. Obviously, her and, and David Perdue have formed this, una- you know, this kind of unusual alliance to try and kind of attack that. And it'll be interesting to see whether this is the forum that they'll be able to really do it. Yeah, Melita, we should point out that the judge has already ruled that uh, the, the unlevel playing field of this leadership committee uh, means that Kemp cannot use money he raises in a primary battle against David Perdue, who doesn't have access to a leadership committee, but he's still raising it for what he sees as his general election campaign. Well, as of January 31, he had raised $2.3 million with that committee. I think that's an that's a a figure that Stacey Abrams will be able to quickly, quickly overcome. Her fundraising operation is so very strong. The minute she is fully the Democratic nominee after the primary, she'll have that money coming in the door by the truckload. Um, Kurt, nevertheless, I think I've heard more people on both sides of the aisle say that they just think this leadership committee uh, idea was so, so unfair and, and, and it's interesting, uh, we've got almost no time, but I'll give you 20 seconds to comment on just that. Well, 20 seconds, two, two, two quick thoughts. Um, um, one, it's a reflection of the important role that money's gonna play in this next election. Uh, it's a sign of what's yet, what's, uh, yet to come, and, and it's a signal of the, the fact that uh, the legal strategies of the world have to be played out. Kurt Young, Melita Easters, Tamar Hellerman, I'm totally out of time uh, for today's show. By the way, uh, we're getting out a Political Rewind newsletter for tomorrow. I'll be writing it right after the show today. If you're not a subscriber, go to gpb.org slash newsletters, and you can join us for our Wednesday Political Rewind email. That's it for us uh, for today. Of course, we'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. Again, my thanks to Kurt, Melita, and Tamar. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. See you tomorrow.
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.